We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse through their industry. Pulse through their industry. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. Have to be consistent. You got to keep the big picture that hey, we're changing the world. We're changing. The league presents Electric People. What's up, everybody? This is Electric People. We are in sunny Southern California, and we are joined by Jeff Curl. What's up, Jeff? Not too much. How Thanks are you, for man? having me. Much appreciated. This is kind of like an artsy setting here. You like to surround yourself by art? Is this your? Yeah, that was the original idea, right? We we saw socks were basically white or black and looked like a blank canvas to us. So the idea that we could take all of our favorite art and put it on socks that was a big part of the original idea. Sounds very simple. Pretty awesome. Right. It's like my socks are wet. Well. Yeah, may as well do it. Yeah. So for you guys that don't know, uh, Jeff is the chairman and founder of Stance Socks. And I kind of want to get into um, that. That's how I first knew you. Um, you have history with our founder. You and you and Todd Peterson are friends and have known each other for a while. Is that right? Yep. Um, but I, in researching you and like the more I've learned and the more podcasts and stuff, you're very uh, well-rounded person. You kind of have your hands in a whole lot of different things from angel investing, uh, tech startups, uh, leadership training, sales management, you kind of do a little bit of everything. Is that right? Yeah, I've definitely dabbled for sure. Yeah. So originally you're from San Francisco and then you went out to Utah. That, you went to school in Utah, is that right? Yep. Okay. Yep. I grew up in a little city called Pleasanton, okay. which is in the East Bay area. Yeah. And then uh, went to school at BYU and then relocated here to Southern California, San Clemente in 2007. Okay. So Pleasanton, that's pretty close to like Danville, Concord, like that area, yeah, right? Yeah, real close. Yep. That was my first. Just a little south of Danville. Yeah. That was my first foray into direct sales was up into that area. Mm. Yeah. Um, so when you went to, you went to school at BYU, yep. is that right? And then your first, kind of like your first like career starter was at, was with the Covey company. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I, I got a sales job actually working. Yeah, I didn't know this. This is like, time. yeah. Uh, doing basically phone sales, just cold phone sales. The company was called the Covey Leadership Center. Mm -hmm. And the way that it worked was Stephen Covey had these best-selling books, uh, initially The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but he added principle-centered leadership and eventually first things first. And when you read the book, inside was a business reply card. We called it the BRC. And you could check, hey, I really like this content. I'm interested in more. And it could be a seminar that was happening in your city where it could be a couple of days more in depth. Or sometimes people would say, I'm the director of HR at the Disney company. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring this training to our employees. So I would actually get those BRCs. So they would like fill them out with like a pen yep. and so like, it was like send old them fashioned in. lead gen, right? Wow. Like they sent you a postcard. Yep, is a postcard. So the postcard. Can you imagine would... nowadays people like going, like looking for a stamp and like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> so those are would... pretty hot leads though. Yeah, yeah. So it would arrive on my desk. And of course, we'd qualify it based on the person's title and their organization. And some people just wanted uh, more content for themselves. And we had this newsletter called Executive Excellence. Uh, where they could get an article by Dr. Covey and then other thinkers every month on up to, we'll come deliver this a hundred times in your organization to all your employees. And so I'd sort of figure out like what the gist of the lead was, what they really wanted. And then we had this suite of trainings that we would offer. And so it was very much like a cold call. Wow. You know, most of the time people were receptive because they were so excited about the content. But when you're, when you're selling a product that's le a leadership development product, how much do you attribute your current style of leadership to selling that product, you know, years ago? 
Yeah, a lot. I mean, I think it's really valuable early in your career to have a job where the entire success, the outcome is determined by your interpersonal skills. Mm -hmm. Like your ability to just pick up a conversation from scratch with anyone, it's a really valuable skill. And you don't really get it any other way but by sales. Whether it's face-to-face, -face, you know, knocking doors yeah. or over a telephone, mm -hmm. it's like you eat what you kill and you genuinely are you know, rewarded for how well you can develop a relationship and serve the needs of the customer on the spot. Yeah, I think, first of all, you're one of us. You're, one of, you're a direct seller, man. I did not know that. Yeah, but, five years. Yeah. So the crazy thing is, uh, it's all the same thing, right? No matter if it's on the phone, no matter if it's door to door, no matter if it's face to face, catching, it's, it's, it's creating a deal where there wasn't one before. And it's often hurt. Like if you ever listen to like the early sales guys like Brian Tracy and like the early sales yep. guys like that, they always talk about that, how like learning how to sell and the art of persuasion being one of the most valuable skills. And if you can learn it early on, man, you can't even like think of where that will take you. Yeah. You know? And it's, as anyone who's done it knows, it's really hard. It's trial and error and there's a lot of failure and it takes a long time of failing before it starts working. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of when you have it. That's great. So after that, you, um, you were an EVP for Logo Works. Yep. Right? Sometimes thereafter. And that was in Salt Lake City. Yeah. It was actually in uh, initially Linden. Oh, and really? And then later we moved it to American Fork. Actually, our building, it was acquired by HP, so it used to say HP. Yeah. But it was on the freeway, not far from Vivint Solar. By like the Adobe. And, isn't that crazy how it different was right that by, area um, is now? It was like across from the BMW dealership. Yeah. I can't remember which exit that is, but I think it's That's like right the, next to where they're building, Amazon's building a distribution center there now. Makes sense. Yeah, yep. it's crazy. Um, so what was, that, what was that company and what, what, what were you focusing on there? Yeah, so we created an online marketplace for graphic designers. So the problem we were trying to solve is there's graphic designers all over the world, small businesses all over the world. And the traditional way of getting design done was call a local ad agency or get networked into some local designer and they may or may not have the background or the skills for what you're trying to pull off. Sometimes it's a logo, sometimes it was signage, sometimes it's can you design the bags for my retail store. Mm -hmm. Like the nature of the work was all over the map. And so what we did is we just put all of that online to make it efficient. And it was one of the first labor marketplaces, of course, back then eBay had just sort of taken off and the yeah. idea was, hey, they created a marketplace for selling could we create a marketplace for labor? And later there was marketplaces for you know, legal, like LegalZoom, yeah. marketplaces for um, all sorts of other you know, slices of labor. Um, and you sort of had to get specialized to succeed. We were very specialized in, in graphic design. And, and after a couple of years, we were doing so much design work. Literally, we had designers in all over Europe and all over Central and South America and doing work for clients in North America. And all of those customers were printing a lot. And HP, who's in the business of spilling ink, called and said, we want to get downstream. So they had bought um, you know, a photo sharing company and they, had want, they, they purposely had targeted us because we were, we were doing so much design. Hmm. Your, your career seems to be something where you have an idea that may be small and then it connects and turns into this massive thing. Cause I even think of, you know, 99 designs, which you're an investor in 99 designs. Is that right? I was. Yeah. So after we sold logo works, those guys called me and they said, Hey, we think we have an even more efficient way to create yeah. a marketplace. 
we just want to specialize in logos yeah. and get even more specific. And instead of LogoWorks was more of a managed service, meaning the customer would pay us and we would ensure that they were happy all the way through the very end. The idea behind 99designs was more of a sort of a just an open marketplace mm -hmm. where make it easy for anyone to find any designer directly. So I did get involved with them early on, but I eventually sold my position in the company. Okay. How do you have how do you have the confidence? I mean, it seems like all of your uh, your ideas for your companies have started with this question of which problem can I solve? Is there something that led you to that specific arena? Because it doesn't seem like you know you're a graphic designer or you're you know even a web designer or whatever. But it's just like you you have these ideas on how to solve a problem. Yeah. So in the case of LogoWorks, I actually didn't think of the idea. It was a good friend of mine from college and. He was working at this little software company in Provo, and they merged with a bigger software company in Colorado, and they were doing software for insurance companies. And his job, he was the director of marketing. He had to create a new corporate identity. So he went through this process of calling a local ad agency, going into the conference room, seeing these blackboards, here's your fancy new, and every iteration they would do was off the mark and frustrating. So finally he just went in the back room and found it was a single designer like on a computer. And when, like he got, <laughs> when he got to the screen, he's like a little more of this, a little less of that, color this, don't color that. Like he was able to just do the revisions in real time. And then that led him to think that was so inefficient. Like there's gotta be a better way. Yeah. And he really came up with the idea of the marketplace. And at the time I was working at a venture capital fund in Salt Lake City. So he would come up to my office and we started sketching out the business plan, the, the initial PowerPoint presentation of what it would look like and figuring out how big was the market and how would it need to work and sort of getting into the nuts and bolts of it. But the original idea came out of frustration from a problem. Um, and, and, you know, it ended up that there were a lot of other people that had that exact same frustration. Well, look at what it's become. Even now, like your fivers, like that's the thing is it seems that you've had your hands in a couple things that once you touch and then it turns into this massive, I mean, skull candy is another one, right? Like think of what headphones used to be and now it's a whole lifestyle, right? There's also kind of an underlying tone of art to everything that you've seemed to do. Where does that come from? From skull candy to stance to even like design and stuff like that. Is that intentional or is that just your personality? Yeah, I'm not really sure. I never really connected the dots that way. You know, I, I was a marketing major, so I always had an I, you know, a, I guess a point of view on the visual expression of a brand mm -hmm. um, and what looks right to me. But I'm not sure that was really the common denominator. I think, quite frankly, is a little bit of luck, and it was a little bit of, you know, in both cases with both of those companies, I was just trying to help the entrepreneur. So Morgan, the founder of LogoWorks, when he had this idea, I really spent the time with him to figure out what the business could look like. And I just did it in my spare time because I wanted to see him succeed. And as it started to get a little traction, I was like, wow, there's actually something here. And likewise, um, when Rick first approached me at Skullcandy, it was very much of, hey, I, I think there's something here. I don't really know how to raise money. I don't really know how to structure a company. Were you guys friends before? No, he actually approached me. I was working at the, the venture fund I mentioned, and yeah. 
he came in looking for money and I was pretty quick to dismiss him and say, really? look, I don't think our firm will ever invest in a company trying to design headphones for snowboarders. Yeah. Like we're doing pretty internet niche. and software right. companies. Yeah. Mm. This is not a fit. Yeah. And you know, then he called me and said, Hey, let's go snowboarding a few months later. And then the way that it actually happened, believe it or not, is he called me a few nights before the consumer electronics show in 2003. And he said, I'm going down to the show and I've got my samples, I've paid for the booth, but I actually have run out of money. I don't have enough money to pull off the whole trip. And I need a little bit of cash. And so I gave him a credit card over the phone. And he went down and charged the show on my credit card. And that was how the first Skull Candy trade show happened. That's crazy. And, um, and then he called and just me. Just your own personal credit card. Yeah, and he called me and he was like, hey, good news. I sold $900,000 worth of headphones at the show. Bad news, not sure how we're gonna pay for the inventory. So then, <laughs> I have to, dis- I have some to good news and bad news. Yeah. Loan. <laughs> so then I went to a few other folks in Salt Lake and sort of said, hey, let's put a little angel round together and let's invest in this company and see where it can go. And quite frankly, I remember having a conversation with Rick where I was sort of like, I think if we play all of our cards right, this could be like a $20 million business. And like little did we know, like a few years later was more than 100 million, a few years after that 200 million, and it just kept growing. And so it ended up being much larger than any of us initially estimated. But I would say the common denominator in both cases was I just wanted to see the entrepreneur succeed. I wasn't actually the founder. I was just there early on at the formative stage. I think that's an interesting point because um, Adam and I run sales teams, and we see a lot of people that have, we had um, one, leaders named Sterling. We had him on the podcast and we were talking, we were kind of reviewing his career. And it was funny because I was like, man, you've never actually asked for a promotion, but he's moved up through the ranks and been promoted so many times. And we see a lot of people that come in and say, okay, I can add some value, but what do I get? Your story is, this is a cool idea. I can help you. Let's see how far it goes. And I guess maybe when you strive to add value, then value is returned. It's interesting how you see that cycle over and over again in business. I mean, you've probably seen it a lot. I bet there's been a lot of people that want to come to the party once everything's going well, but maybe weren't there adding value in the early days. Yeah, I think I've very much been on the side of, hey, let me just help, never expecting anything in return. And many times there never is anything in return. Once in a while, there is. Well, it's the principle of help others achieve their goals and you will, as a byproduct, achieve your goals. So... Um, you know, you're just constantly helping other people get to where they're trying to go. And then the, the unintended result is that you're obviously just getting where you're trying to go as well. Yeah. What would you say your main, um, what, what's your brand? Like, what's the thing that you love to do most? What's, I guess, the place where you add the most value? What's your perfect fit? Well, I think the idea with, with Stance was really when I looked back at those experiences of Skull Candy and Logo Works and... Covey Leadership Center before that, the part about those experiences that was magical for me was the interactions with the people. And I just got really fortunate that those organizations had really great people and they were good hearted, good natured, like positive people. And so after LogoWorks had sold and after Skull Candy had gone public, it was sort of like, geez, I wish there was a way to relive the feeling that I had in those offices, the small team, positive, ambitious, like that was the part I missed. I didn't yeah. really care what the product or service was. Yeah. It was just who I was doing it with. 
And the idea of a brand was captivating because I viewed it as like a container for everything I loved. Interesting. So I, I had this, you know, maybe a little bit, um, I don't know, the right way to say it would just be my interests were all over the map. Mm -hmm. So I liked everything from like auto racing to surfing. And I liked everything from hip hop to, um, you know, live music mm -hmm. and just like a really varied group of interests. I loved art and the idea that you could take a brand and put everything you love in it. And on the one hand, I think you could argue that stance is this, you know, it, it's about originality and it makes sense. On the other hand, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems like a bunch of unholy alliances. Yeah. It seems like, yeah. If you're not looking at the strategy there, it's almost like I can get Wu-Tang socks and I can get NBA socks. You know yeah. what I mean? I remember when we launched our partnership with Dwayne Wade, initially, you know, we were born in skateboarding. We were all skateboarders. And one of the, the things about stance we wanted to do was put all this amazing historical skateboard art on socks. Like, like decks, I wanted like art from decks and stuff. I wanted like the Christian Hosoy rising sun graphics yeah. on a sock. I wanted the Steve Caballero dragon on a sock, like all these skateboarders that I grew up with and looked up to. I wanted to take these unbelievable board graphics, put them on a sock. And when we launched Dwayne Wade, all the skater community was sort of like, Oh, are you guys How did selling that even out come together? How'd you even, that was a whole nother story. Yeah. It just fortuitive, really. Like we, we ended up in a meeting with Dwayne's agent at CAA and it was actually the head of CAA sports. Um, Vino is his name. And, and it was the last meeting of the day and he was threatening to leave and go to the airport. And his team was like, no, nah, stay. There's this little startup coming in. It was at CAA's office. And you guys were tiny at that time. Yeah, we were really tiny in Chicago. And, um, I came into the office. I was dressed like this. I didn't really know what to expect. I just knew we were meeting Dwayne. And it was this conference room of like 10 dudes in suits <laughs> and very formal. Yeah. And they were sort of like, what are you going to do for us? They're representing their client. And um, Dwayne was like, look, you can ask my agent here, Hank. He is, I've been telling him for years that I want to do a sock company. I love socks. I'm a sock freak. You got to see my sock drawer. I love putting design so on you socks. You just found the guy. We got to do something together. Mm. And wow. it was so organic and his passion was so deep that it was like, oh yeah. The, if you can connect with a celebrity on a passion point where it has nothing to do with money, mm -hmm. it's just something they love, mm. then it's authentic and it can work. They probably have people pulling them a million directions all the time and it's not necessarily stuff they love to do, right? That's right. Yeah. Like it's hard for them to go endorse something that they don't use or don't care about. Yeah. Maybe they'll do it for the money. And maybe that works with some customers. Our view was that with younger millennial customers, they would instantly smell that and know it yeah. wasn't authentic yeah. and it wouldn't work. I've always said that with Tiger Woods and Buick. I'm like, is he actually driving a Buick yeah. around? You know what I mean? Probably no, not. No, zero Just when chance. he has to, whatever his yeah. contract yeah. says, how many hours a month? <laughs> he drops off his whatever and he drives into Augusta with the Buick. You know what yeah. I mean? And then that's, that's it. So how did, how did this deal come together then? So we just started talking about what a relationship could look like. And um, he was really great to work with. And so was his agent. And they all invested in the company, his whole team, and um, including Vino, the head of president of CAA Sports. And that was great because Vino had relationships with all the leagues and all the players and could help us navigate that. So they were just really helpful relationships. They provided a ton of value to the company early on. And um, But my point originally was that 
the skate community was kind of like NBA player. Yeah. It was so almost confusing for them. And then not long after that, we're like, we're going to do high fashion socks with Rihanna. And it just one thing after another. And pretty soon people realized the brand's not about skateboarding. It's certainly not about the NBA. It's not necessarily about fashion. It was about these people that were true originals. And if we could find someone that was sort of living life on their own terms, maybe they had taken some risks, taken a contrarian view and been rewarded for it, and we could tell that story, that that story is actually really motivating for kids. And that was what interested me the most. My son at the time was in middle school. So I could see this tension of him wanting to be his own person, but feeling all the pressure to like fit in with all the kids in middle school. And yeah. are you going to wear the same shoes and the same backpack? And or are you just going to like follow the things you love? And that really solidified the idea of the brand. It was like, we're going to be about originality and we're going to hopefully be an inspiration for people to follow their own heart, even if the crowd is telling them to do something else. I think that's mm. so cool because um, as you, I was talking to my mom on the way over here and my dad is uh, CEO of a bank and uh, you know, Adam and I run sales teams and we dress like this and my dad wears a suit to work every day. And for Father's Day, I always come here and I get him stance socks, just a piece of San Clemente or whatever. And he's relatively conservative in his dress and stuff, but it was funny because uh, he was at church with us the other day and he was wearing stance socks with skulls on them. So my dad, right, wearing skull socks. And then, you know, I flipped up and I had something on in my nine-year-old. And it was, it was this weird unifying thing where it's like everybody gets to do a dash of something. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what the brand's about. Yeah. That's great. That's exactly it. So is it hard Well, it's then... created a culture, right? I mean, there's an entire culture of socks now that didn't exist 10 years ago. And I mean, it even went from where everyone was just wearing ankle no-show socks and all of a sudden, mid-calf socks become a thing again because of the graphics and designs and everything, right? So I'm actually kind of curious. I know you, um, before you ask, how did you, why socks? Like, how did you even get into this, you know, the sock arena? Yeah, it's kind of a long story. But I benefited from working in this venture capital fund for four years because mm -hmm. my job was to screen business plans. So I would see all these presentations from different entrepreneurs. And after a while, you, you pick up some pattern recognition. So I, I had a pretty good understanding of the elements of a good business, you know, starting with the idea of what's the sustainable competitive advantage. Like, how hard would it be for someone to copy this? And, and you know, long story short, I, I knew I wanted to do a brand, but I didn't know what the product would be. So I looked at 300 different product categories. And I just compiled the list by walking through Walmart. You're just doing this Target. on your free time? Like, you're yeah. just like, I think I want to do this and started like a sketch or something? Yeah, or? no, luckily, um, so Rick, the founder of Skull Candy, he and I were quite close and we spent a lot of time traveling together. So we would often debate, well, let me back up a little bit. Once Rick had sold that $900,000 worth of headphones at the first consumer electronics show, um, I took the POs and I started calling them. And I was asking the buyers why they were buying Skull Candy. And this buyer, he was at a retailer called Musicland, which doesn't even exist anymore. They sold CDs and cassettes. Wow. And he said, you know, Sony, Bose, and Sennheiser are all black and silver. They're in the same cardboard box. And they're all positioned around, we sound better. Our sound is better. And he said, if I think about Skull Candy, you're in clear packaging, pop colors, and it has nothing to do with sound. 
it is about this irreverent contrarian lifestyle. And he's like, so I'm going to kick out Panasonic or one of the other Me Too's and make room for Skullcandy and see how it does. And not even miss them probably, right? Yes. And so that was this lesson of differentiation and this lesson of how do you stand out in a crowded category? So with that viewpoint, Rick and I started profiling categories. And we would say, hey, could we do sunblock? Could we do school supplies? Could we do luggage? Could we do jewelry? So everywhere. Yeah, both consumer packaged goods, like things like bottled water, or protein bars, all the way to ordinary apparel next, and accessories. Next time you see like a random guy walking through Walmart just taking notes, <laughs> be like, I'm thinking twice, I'm thinking I twice before doing. I judge him. I'm like, he's doing some research. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I would stand yeah. in front of a category and I would sort of visually size it up, take a picture of it, look at all the colors. When you're thinking about positioning, it's price, it's visual expression of the brand. What does the brand stand for besides the product itself? Um, all of those things are coming to light. And then the creativity begins, which is if we were going to disrupt this category, where is it vulnerable? How could you be different? You know, do you win on price? Do you win on quality? Do you win on some differentiating element? Like, what is it? And, and is it worth it? Even if you could win, yeah. is the category even worth it? Um, and so having done that for 300 categories, we developed like 25 criteria of what makes a good category. But the five primary ones were first, can you differentiate from the incumbents? Second, gross margin profile, like could it be profitable? Are the unit economics good? Third, was it internet friendly? Meaning low returns, you're comfortable buying it online, easy to ship, not that heavy. Yeah. All the things that lend itself to online marketing. Well, even like sizing, right? You don't have to be, you can be pretty much between three sizes. You don't have to have 12. Right? All those things matter, right? Uh, another thing we looked at was frequency of repurchase. So if you had like razors over here and mattresses over here, we wanted to be a little closer to razors, mm -hmm. something that had a more frequent use. We knew customers were expensive to get. And um, so when you start like looking at that landscape of what makes a good category, pretty soon it doesn't take long to filter out like, wow, we don't even want to do school supplies, low gross margin. Mm -hmm. You know, school supplies. That's, were you really thinking about school supplies? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's so random. Yeah, because we were like, look, these binders are so poorly designed. They have like flowers and pineapples. It's <laughs> so funny. And, like we were going back to like the peachy folders yeah. and the trapper keepers yeah. when we were a kid. And could we like next level all that stuff? And then we're like, wow, the gross margins are really bad. Um, it's highly cyclical. They only buy it in back to school season. And you start coming up with all these reasons why maybe the category is a little bit tougher. And it doesn't mean that you can't build a brand on a tough category. I think a good example, one of our top categories was luggage. We really, when we did the work on luggage, we knew like 70% of the world's luggage was unbranded. Hmm. The number one best-selling piece of luggage in the U.S. was Costco Kirkland. Um, and we thought, geez, again, mostly black, blank canvas. We could do some really interesting things. Totally ripe for disruption. I later invested in a company called Away uh, in New York. Yeah. And the reason why I didn't do luggage myself was because I felt like if we built the world's best roller board and you lifetime guaranteed it, like, would it be difficult yeah. to get the next sale and the next sale? I think they've done a pretty masterful job of A, creating all these products from backpacks to bigger roller boards to... Are they the ones that are like hard case and they have like 
battery ports and yep. stuff on the outside. Yep. And yeah. now they're moving into apparel and accessories and other things. And Is they've it really travel used apparel and accessories. I think it's inspired by travel, right? But I think they did a great job of creating a brand that stood for more than just a rollerboard, right? So it gave them permission, or it appears their customers are giving them permission yeah. to do more than just that initial piece of luggage. And so I think that's a good example of taking a single product and being able to expand it into other products really successfully because of the brand equity you built, the trust you built with your customers. I think it's that's a you basically put yourself through a master class of business education. And that's one of the things for our listeners is, you know, we get to talk to a lot of people that have really inspiring stories. And a lot of it is just their level of consciousness. Like when you're, when you're working at this venture capital fund, you're not sitting around thinking this sucks. It's almost Friday. You instead got to analyze all these business plans, right? You got to meet other people. You got to see other people navigate it. And then this idea of making your own list, categorizing, kicking stuff out, considering everything, you literally gave yourself just so much experience and so much time thinking about it that now when you look at your brand, uh, socks. Well, it's not just socks now. I mean, you guys got retail stores, you've got shirts, underwear, women's, I don't even know what's next, but it's, you almost followed the same pattern, right? That's the hope. That's what we're trying. I think you point out something really interesting. Uh, when I was working at this venture fund, I actually was a little bit grumpy. Oh, really? And I was grumpy for a couple of reasons. One, the culture that had been created inside the firm was a little bit toxic, workaholic, mm -hmm. a little bit thankless. Like if you want to quit, your job will get replaced instantly. Um, and I felt underpaid and underappreciated. And I was working these crazy hours like nights, weekends, conference calls. And I really did enjoy the work. Um, but I can remember we had a partner meeting every Monday. And that's the meeting where you bring new deals in, you kind of gut check them with the partnership. Like your sales meeting kind of. Yeah. yeah and if you have a, a, an investment you're trying to make, the partner trying to make that investment has to circulate an investment memo with sort of all the relevant information so that everyone can vote on it and understand what they're voting on. And so my job would, was to sort of write this summary of the company, make reference calls on the people involved, summarize the reference calls, summarize the financial statements and the unit economics and the leverage of the business, talk about the distribution channels, any intellectual property, like all the elements of Vet the business, I'd have yeah. to break it down. And these would be like 20 page book reports. So inevitably I would be gathering this information, reading market research, making calls for weeks, and it would come down to like Sunday night. And like Sunday night at like 9 p.m., I'd be like, okay, I gotta like finish this up because I have to circulate it tomorrow morning. And I'd inevitably work all night to like five, six, seven in the morning. And then weekly? Just, no, no, it'd be, we had the meeting weekly, but maybe I had to do a memo maybe once a month. Yeah. And so I'd do this all nighter where I would assimilate all this information and, and write what was effectively like a book report on this company. And I used to sort of begrudge it, like, oh, I can't believe I'm working so hard. Like, they're not paying me enough to do this. And I look back on that, and it's a little bit like the sales experience when I first started my career. I look back, and I think how immature I was to view that as this value exchange, mm -hmm. because I was giving no value to all the learning that was happening. But those late nights in the middle of the night, when I was having to author the words, read the financial statements, think critically about these businesses, that was the most valuable education like I could have ever hoped to have. And in a similar way, I think about the early sales calls I had to make at Covey, like call after call after call and the funnel. And, um, you know, having those things early in your career 
really does give you a capability later on. So while you're in the middle of the hard work and it seems a little bit grueling and maybe the value exchange isn't there, you have to sort of look back and say, well, what capability is it giving you as part of your career that then later on you can leverage in a big way? It's great advice. Have you had any failures along the way? Of course. Yeah, I had lots of failures, um, some bigger than others, but um, you know, I think one failure that's interesting that I'll talk about because it, it has to do with Vivint. So in our college years, Todd dropped out and he started selling. Initially, it was pest control. And I think his first market was actually Arizona, and he got a group of guys and went down to Arizona. Yeah, and they're running out of like a trailer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just super hustle mode. Mm-hmm. And a few years into it, it was starting to get some traction, and it was scaling, and he'd get more guys every summer. And as sometimes happens in Utah, people just copy each other's ideas. There's such a like get rich quick, keep up with the Joneses, weird cultural mentality that people just copy each other's business ideas. And so these competitors would pop up to try and do the same thing, and they would then offer Todd's guys more money, and he'd have this frustrating negotiation. And, and so he came to me and he said, hey, is there any way we could this, I had gone on to sort of lead this sales room at Covey, and he was like, could we do inside sales during the school year so that my guys, where I only have a job for them in the summer, mm-hmm. if I could give them part-time work in the winter, then I might not lose them to competitors, like if I can still give them a way to make money. So back then the company was called Apex. And so we started a sub-company called Apex Training and Development. And I convinced Covey to let us move the sales room outside of Covey, still get the lead cards and still sell the Covey products, but staff it with basically the early Vivint employees. Wow. And so for a year or two. I didn't know that. Yeah, this is like early Apex history. So for a year or two, we would take the best summer salespeople and we would offer them a job four hours a day. We created these four hour shifts because we felt like the students couldn't work more than that. And it was just phone sales, the same thing that I started doing. And just like you'd imagine in the summer, there was like a huge gap between the very best guys and the guys that that weren't great. But the reality was, you know, somewhere six months into it, we were looking at it and we were making like $3,000 a month profit. Like we just couldn't make much profit. I think what made it work inside of Covey was that they could retain the customer for life and sell them all these other services. But the initial sales just weren't that profitable selling sort of personal development books and tapes and things, which Mm -hmm. is really what it was back then. And so I went to Todd and I was like, look, I know we had visions of grandeur and maybe this is working for you because you can retain your salespeople, but it's not really working for me. And because I'm just not making enough money to have it be worth my time. And so that was an example where, you know, for like a year I poured my heart and soul into it and it just didn't pan out the way that I thought it would. Um, You know, Todd and I were, were able to maintain a great relationship through it, but I looked at that as very much a failure. And then I left that to start an internet company. This is like in the late 90s. It was called Freeport. And I was able to attract funding, hire a lot of people. We grew to over 100 people really quite quickly. And the idea was sort of like an early version of Groupon. Um, I had read this book by Seth Godin. I think it was like his first bestseller called Purple Permission Cow. Marketing. Oh. And way back in the day, this yeah. is like 1997 That's or That's Purple Cow, right? Yeah. Wow. It was before he was like a known author. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was actually running part of Yahoo. And um, 
So it was this idea that we would help local businesses electronically capture the identities of their customers and then have a marketing platform that they could log into and send targeted emails to their customers. Seems simple enough, but back then there were no smartphones. Most people didn't have internet access. If you did, it was dial up. Like DSL was a brand new thing. And you know, the stock market crash of 2000 happened and all the internet companies lost its value and lost their values. And almost overnight, all the venture capitalists pulled back their, their willingness to fund. And we had this huge burn rate. We were like all the other companies, just trying to get as big as fast as we could. And that was this huge lesson. So I had to lay off over a hundred people. Oh my gosh. It was super painful. You had to make those, like that was your decision to make. Oh, it was awful. It was horrible. It was like, on the one hand, a few months earlier, you're looking at the cap table and thinking you're like a paper millionaire. Yeah. Like I've made all this money. If I can just get, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just gotta get a, a, a little bit longer. and. And unfortunately, it just, um, you know, it all collapsed so quickly. And so that was a big lesson of I'm never going to be dependent on venture capital dollars. Like I'm willing to, to take risk and grow quickly, but I'll never get a company so far upside down that if a VC doesn't come in to give us money, we go out of business. Mm. And so that, again, really shaped how we operated Stance. In our third year at Stance, we did 21 or 22 million in sales with like a million and a half of EBITDA. So once we were profitable and had a growth trajectory, only then did we add venture capital to accelerate it. And I think that was shaped by those early failures. So like no one likes to talk about them, but that's certainly where like the best lessons are learned. Absolutely. When you had a big failure like that, does that rattle your confidence to try the next one? For sure. For how sure. do you break? So how do you break through that? Well, for me, you know, it's funny in Silicon Valley, people like to celebrate. You know, and I grew up in the Bay Area, so they mm. like to celebrate the idea of failure, fail fast, fail often. Like, if you're not failing, you're not risking enough. But the reality is, like, if you fail enough times in a row then as an no entrepreneur, one. like, investors aren't going to back you're you again. Of, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's one thing if yeah, it's one thing if you have a great reputation, you have one idea that goes wrong, everyone understands that you fail two or three times, yep. then somebody's like, yeah, I'm not giving you my money anymore. Yes, so I was very cautious when I joined LogoWorks. And by the time I joined, we were doing about $10,000 a month. I know that sounds really small, but it was enough that we would get 20 or 30 customers in a month and I could call them. And I was calling the customers and I was saying, hey, did you like the service? What other services did you consider? How much would you have paid? And I was asking all these insightful questions around the experience. And I learned that we were actually delivering a tremendous amount of value and customers were supremely happy with the service. And that's what gave me the confidence to jump back in and do another startup and sort of risk it all again was just because at that point in my mind, when you have a bunch of customers that are saying, we love this, we would recommend this, we would do this again. The real question then is how big is the market and how fast can it scale? Because right? you know you have a good value exchange. There's real product market fit. And so in my mind, that was actually not that risky. It was sort of a calculated bet. But in the back of my head, I was like, this one has to work. Hmm. Because if it doesn't work, then I've had a string of, of failures. And so I've got to learn from those, and I've got to ensure that the odds are in my favor and just get up and swing again. And so it was just really fortunate that, turns out, LogoWorks was a success. 
and customers did love the service and we were able to grow it really quickly. Um, so all of that was, was really helpful to sort of changing it from a couple of failures to a brand of, hey, at least there was one success to hang my hat on. Right. What would you say your, you mentioned that um, you wanted to work around really good people. You're kind of, you know, when we talked to Jesse Itzler, one of the things that he said is, you know, kind of unanimous or uh, applicable to everybody is people just want to feel good. So, well, how would you describe your, your leadership style? How do you create that feeling? Because there's a lot of people that work here now, right? How, what, what would, how would you describe your style and how do you create an environment where people aren't entitled, grumpy like maybe you were when you were doing your uh, late nights at, at the venture capital company? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea behind it was try and create a workplace that I would want to work in mm -hmm. and that would make me feel empowered. And, and so that's the high level objective. It's a lot harder to actually execute, particularly yeah. as you hire more people. I mean, the first thing is, you know, really identifying your values. And by the time we had five, six, seven, eight people, we started saying, okay, values already exist. You're sharing values. Mm -hmm. You just haven't articulated them yet. So let's start to articulate how we work together and what we care about. And so we would say there was this element of teamwork, but not just teamwork generally, very specifically, like we didn't want to let each other down. And there was this other element of teamwork where for whatever reason, a couple of the early guys like John Wilson, who's now the CEO, my co-founder, he has this amazing confidence, but it's this quiet, humble confidence he would never take credit for anything. It's always the credit goes to everyone else. And he really exemplified this idea. I call it high impact, low fingerprint. It's high like impact, low fingerprint. Making a huge difference, but never talking about it. Mm. And so we sort of identified that as a character trait we wanted Who, our people to have. Who's identifying that? So you're the CEO at this point. So do you yeah. feel like it's your job to yeah. articulate the values? Yes, so I'm articulating them. Yeah. They're existing, they're happening. And I'm just simply saying, wow, there's this element of we don't want to let each other down. Wow, there's this element of no one takes credit for anything, but people are getting big results around here. Those are really interesting things. And so we start to like put words on those behaviors. So when I say values, what I really mean is behaviors. Like what are the specific behaviors that happen over and over again in this company that we care about and we want to see more of, mm. right? So we have this value of entrepreneurship and you could say, well, maybe that only applies to a small company. But when we say entrepreneurship, what we mean is that you do a lot with a little, that you have sort of a scrappy disposition that you're willing to take risks, but they're thoughtful risks. Like you understand the probabilities, and once you know the odds are in our favor, then you take the risk. It's not shoot from the hip, gunslinging, yeah. don't gather all the information. It's thoughtful risk taking. And then it's okay if you fail because you did your work up front. And so we started kind of collecting those ideas and putting them on paper. And I circulated the initial draft, but people would add to it and edit it. And then once we started to put that together in sort of a brand book, it became our constitution of what the culture is at Stance. So where that becomes helpful is now you can hire for those attributes. You can ask questions to identify if the person shares those values. And let's just say that you have a value that says we do a lot with a little. And then you hire someone out of a very big company with huge budgets and huge teams that never really shovels their own dirt. Like we know the culture here will reject them because yeah. our team gets their hands dirty. Mm. And so you could probably predict that and screen for it, but let's just say they arrived here 
and they worked like that, you could then have a conversation and it's not about an arbitrary, hey, your performance doesn't seem good. Performance is much easier with salespeople, right? It just is binary. Yes. But for lots of people in a company, like how do you know if you're really performing or not? And one way that you can do that that's not arbitrary is you can simply line up their behaviors against the behaviors that you value. And so if you say, we're scrappy and get our hands dirty, there's a person over here who clearly can't operate without a big budget and a big team and they don't like to get their hands dirty, it's easy to say, if you're not more like this, there's probably not a fit here for you. And then they can understand, oh, I have to behave like that if I want to win in the culture of stance. It's so interesting because our culture, our sales culture um, in the solar industry, we're, I think we're, I'd safe to say we're the only company where we demand our leaders to lead from the front with personal performance as well as managing their teams. So that's like a, a huge part of our culture. So when we're recruiting a leader from another company, we're instantly asking them, you know, are you a good salesman? Can you go out and sell? Are you going to go out and sell? Because a lot of these guys, they just want to be, you know, generals in the tent and tell everyone what to go do and whatever. And we're like, that's not us. Like, we go out and sell every single day. Um, and then our very best teams, I think you nailed it. Um, our, our, our leadership groups, they, uh, how do you say it? They, um, you said it a minute ago, they care about, uh, they don't want to let each other down. Um, I think our very best leadership teams, they feel this sense of, it's not even they're doing it for themselves. They just don't want to let their team and their co-managers that they manage with down, right? They're, it's not even that they're going out and doing it for themselves anymore. They just don't want to let other people down. And I think those are our very best teams that we have is when that culture of selflessness um, and the willingness to get your hands dirty is just part of the culture. I think you said too, um, a lot of people think they create culture. I'm interested in your thoughts on this, which you kind of spoke to it already, where you stood back and looked at, what do we have here? I think that's an art because in our sales teams, some people are like, okay, we are gonna be competitive. Well, if I'm on your sales team, I'm internally competitive, but I don't care about beating you. I care about doing my best. So I probably wouldn't be happy on that team. But I think our best leaders stand back and they say, okay, what do we have here? Right? I think that I hope our sales leaders that are listening are thinking they need to step back and look at their teams and say, man, we love each other. This is a, or, or we're a group of entrepreneurs, or we're a group uh, that does more with less, whatever it is. Because when you try to impose culture on a group, the result is frustration. Yeah. Right? When you look around and say, hey, what do we have that's positive and can we maximize that? But how do you remind everybody that? Because you talk about the culture, but do you. Like I'm thinking about my house. Like I'll 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 have things at my at my house where I'll put a little saying like in my kids' room, and I want them, you know, eventually when they're in their college years to think back and go, oh yeah, my dad had an accountability quote in my room that he would never let me take down. You know, like so. How do you sort of sell the culture once you recognize that it's there? How do you continually remind everybody that this is who we are? Yeah, I think a couple of responses. First, to your point it is harder to change an existing culture than to just embrace something that exists yeah, and sort of take impossible. the most positive mm -hmm. behaviors. And, you know, it is possible, like clearly there are businesses where the culture has become toxic and doesn't work and they I bring see. in new leadership and they're able to drive new culture through the business and, and that's we a see big change. We sports changer. every single year, right? Yes, so it can be done, but it is more challenging. 
Um, I also think that you know, if you start doing it when you're early, most companies think that's something that big companies do and they don't have to pay attention to it till later. But if you start getting your arms around it and just identifying the natural positive things that are happening, the behaviors, the definition of culture is just the collective behaviors in the company. So good and bad. So let's take the ones that we think are positive and can be enduring and really celebrate those. And then to answer your question, I think there's a variety of ways you can continue to remind everyone. First, through your performance reviews. Second, when you fire someone, you fire them when they violate your, your values. When their behaviors don't align, you're like, look, the values of one of our employees are here. Yours are here. They're different. That's why we're moving on. And that communicates to everyone who stays in the company that you actually care about the behaviors. You value those behaviors. So it, it really communicates um, to everyone else that point. And then we do town hall meetings every four to six weeks where we bring the whole company in. And a part of that content is always a deep dive on one of the values. And then our culture team does a great job of like, You'll see if you went to one of our restrooms, you'll be in the urinal, and there'll be something, to your point, like a quote about one of the values or a, mm. an example, something there where you are getting reminded throughout the office. Um, and so it's a combination of all those things that just, it requires constant reinforcement. And then when you're hiring people, you really can screen for values. The traditional company just screens for skills and experience, and there are certain jobs where that's required. If you're gonna hire a computer programmer, an accountant, they probably need those skills. But then you layer on, we have a second interview, and there's a group of people that do that, and they don't look at the resume. We wanna be completely unbiased. And the questions aren't about skills and experience, the questions are about values. Like, what was your upbringing? What do you care about? How do you operate? What's your personal constitution? And once we understand that, we can overlay that to the stance values and say, hey, is there a match here? And if there's clear stories and responses in those interviews where there's not alignment, it's like, let's not go down the path of hiring this person, even if they have the skills. Have we talked about Greg Popovich on the podcast before? I, I don't remember. know Greg Popovich. So no. Uh, you know Greg Popovich is coach of the Spurs. So um, I know nothing about sports, and Adam is like Mr. Sports, and so he gives me that look that you just so saw he, a couple times a week. Like, <laughs> yeah. You don't know Greg Popovich. He's considered one of the best coaches. No, he's to like ever it's him and Bill Belichick. It's like him and Belichick. I'd like probably the, know if he was married to like there. a celebrity. That's the kind of stuff I know. So, um, so Popovich, he's known for the best culture of like any team in the NBA. But so I um, in an article I read. When they're interviewing players before the draft, they obviously look at all their skills and see how they're going to fit in the team. But then they do the same exact thing where they have different people in the organization interview the players that they're thinking about drafting. And the, the, the final question is just, is he a spur? And if he's not a spur, then we don't want him, no matter that's how cool. good he is. It's just if he's not a spur, then we're not taking him. And that's how they got Kawhi Leonard, who is from this area, right? I mean, I'm sure you yeah. watched him play college and everything out here, but um, he was like the 15th pick in the NBA draft and you know, widely regarded as the best player out of that draft now. But everybody missed on him because of his, you know, his height, his whatever. But Popovich saw him and he's like, no, he's a spur. And so that's 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good way to, to not have to have the frustrating conversations, right? I was once told that all frustration comes from unmet expectation. So if you can clearly communicate the expectation and find the person, then they can run, then they have wings, right? That, that's really great. Tell us about a sales story. Give us a, a big sale. Uh, you, you know, you guys are the, uh, you have a license with the NBA. You're the official stock of the MLB, which is huge. I mean, you didn't, you didn't start this company with that goal, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. So how tell are there stories of how those got done? I'm sure there were moments where it's like this is make or break. Well, the NBA had a stronghold on the sock for decades. Like that's the one I really was hoping to hear before we started. Yeah. So let's talk about that. And, and, and there is a sales story there. We had sold mostly casual socks for like the first three years. And a casual sock is easier to make and the material science is simpler and you don't have to solve more complex problems about abrasion and fit. And when you're really talking about a piece of equipment for a professional athlete, then the level of science that goes into the product is, is high. And so we wanted to compete on like a world stage as this young sock company. And so we had invested in material scientists and like top-notch Italian knitting machinery. And we were getting educated on what it would actually take both the ingredients and the construction technology to build the world's best socks, like becoming expert knitters. So and, you guys went all in. Yeah, yeah, we're going all in. And and then the thought was, okay. He's like we, the evil scientist. He's like, we're going to take over the NBA. <laughs> yeah, like, it's kind of like. We're taking over baseball. And your partner just looks at you and you're like, no, we're doing it. Well, it was like, look, if, if we're going to invest all this time, money, and energy into actually scientifically building a better product, and by the way, some of these differences are hard to perceive as a consumer. Like when you initially put the sock on, yeah, it might feel softer, it might seem like the fit's better, but you really don't know until you get out and run with it or, or play your sport in it and, and start to feel all the differences versus, um, relative to what you were already using. So we, we thought if we could get any validation in the world, it would be like the NBA. If the NBA would say, like, these are the socks we trust our players to wear, that would be the ultimate performance validation. So how do we get that? So luckily, through Skullcandy, we were actually, we had a marketing relationship with the NBA, so we knew some of the folks on the licensing team. So we were sort of asking the question, and as you'd imagine, initially they're like, oh, that will never happen. Yeah. Like, why would that happen? Um, you know, we've had the Jumpman NBA sock forever. Um, with the NBA logo. And, and they have to wear the same stuff, right? You were saying yes. aside from the shoes, everyone's got to wear the same stuff. Yes, so the league mandates every piece of clothing. The only thing the player gets to decide is their shoe. And so technically Adidas had the license, but they weren't really using it. And the NBA was using uh, this little company called Four Bare Feet to manufacture a pretty basic cotton sock. And so we actually sent our like supersonic basketball sock that we had done all this work on to a lab and had them test the NBA sock and our sock for like moisture, mm -hmm. um, resist, um, uh, moisture management and abrasion resistance and, you know, fit and all these, these different things that you can use for measurement and benchmarked them. And then we showed up and we're sort of like, look, why would you have the world's best players not wear the best equipment? And they were kind of like, I don't know if we could resolve this with Adidas and there's all these complications, yeah. let us look into this. And they had to really like get into contracts. And eventually we showed up at the All-Star Game and it was in New Orleans and Todd Peterson was with me. We flew out there together 
And um, we showed up at a meeting uh, with the MBA licensing team. And we slid a check across the table for a million dollars as a prepayment on the license revenue that we would generate if they would switch the agreement to us. They're like, these guys are serious. <laughs> and so it was like, I don't know if that was a lot or a little yeah. money to the NBA for socks, but it was kind of like, right? guys, we're serious. They're like, hey, our number 11th guy on every team makes a million dollars a year. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know what they made of it, <laughs> yeah. but it was like, we really want to win this agreement yeah. Yeah. and your players should be wearing the best equipment possible. And, um, and you've done the work though. That's a strong argument, right? Like it's about the player and it's about performance and the, the argument makes sense, right? Yes. And luckily they came back after a lot of deliberation and understanding contracts. And they're like, yes, next season you'll be the official sock of the NBA on court, every player, every game. Whoa. And then like my son brought home NBA 2K and we start playing the game and there's like stance socks in wow. the game and the stance thing on the yeah. logo under the scores table rotating. And I, I was just like, wow, it really was like kind of Surreal. a dream come true. Yeah, at what point are you sitting here going, NBA players are wearing my socks? Like, this is wild. Yeah, it was super wild. The, the funnest part was actually, we would get a lot of the players where we have relationships um, to come to stance, and they would play in different prototypes. And we have these thermographic cameras we use to measure like heat dissipation. So we would put one sock on one foot, one sock on the other foot, let them play, take their shoes off and actually watch the heat dissipation. And then we would mix up the composition of the sock, either the ingredients or how it's constructed, where the mesh vents are, and just trial and error getting a better sock. And then to have, you know, we've had so many great players uh, in here play in our gym. Uh, this week we have the Phoenix Suns playing. They're doing their, uh, their fall camp here. But we've had nearly every great player you can think of through the gym. And uh, all of that feedback from actual NBA basketball players trying the equipment and saying more of this, less than that, less of that, and really getting the product to like a spot where did all the it's players the best. did all the players because I know like I've heard stories where when the NBA players would retire, they would go and hoard the the old sock because they were like they know they're not going to be able to get them again once they retire from basketball, so they'd go and you know take a couple dozen pair to wear the rest of their lives kind of thing. Yep. So it almost seems like- There were some stories like, like that. So were there any stories that like resisted, players that resisted like making the transition to your sock? I'll give you the best one. And I hope this isn't covered by some NDA that I'm violating somewhere, <laughs> but. So it's a couple days before the season starting, our first season where every player is gonna be using it. And, and we've now been working with every group of trainers at every team in the league. So we know them all, we're sending them socks, uh, we're changing the graphics for every team. And, and a couple of days before the league starts, the NBA calls and they're like, we have a problem. LeBron doesn't like the sock. Oh, no. You don't want to hear we have a problem and then LeBron next. Yeah, and they're sort know? of like, if it was anyone else in the league, there's only a handful of players in the league where their opinion really does matter. Right. And, um, yeah, and so we need to make Kobe. him happy. It's LeBron, Kobe. You know, maybe it's Kevin Durant or yeah. Steph. I mean, it, it's just like the best players in the league. And and so we were sort of nervous. And, and we come to learn that he's been playing in the same sock since like middle school. And it was a small U.S. manufacturer. It was actually a really generic and simply made sock. 
but he'd won all these games and championships in so this he was superstitious. Yes, there was like a superstition element to it. And, and I don't know all the context as to why he loved this sock, but he did. So we fly out. Well, we're doing these. So we're like, let's just copy the sock. We have all the ingredients here. If he wants to play like, in that sock. Let's just try to make a crappy sock. Try we, really yeah. hard. <laughs> we can actually just copy so it. So hold on. You're like, he's not going to wear a sock. Let's just make the sock he likes. Well, I think the initial thought was let's show up and educate LeBron about sock technology. And once he understands it, then he'll understand that the sock he's wearing actually is, is poorly made. Right. So the way that I understand is it all goes down. He, so we we're doing, we're copying as a backup. We're like, worst case, we'll just take the sock that he loves, put the NBA logos and graphics on it and give him that sock. So he's happy. Like that's the worst case. So we're making the back pocket. This is like three days before the season, right? So we're making the socks here in San Clemente and literally our main like knitter is at our, one of our factories somewhere in the world. So we have like more of a junior apprentice doing it and he keeps botching the sock. Like should be pretty simple, but we're not getting it right. And we finally He's get like, to I like, can't make a crappy sock. Yeah, yeah. I cannot like, make. A crappy we get to like the last of the material. We don't have that much material here because this is more of an R and D center versus a full factory. Yeah. And we finally like get the last couple socks right. So we have like some working socks, but by this one of them shorter than the other one. Yeah, it's too late to FedEx the socks. So we have someone hop on a plane and fly to Chicago where the first game of the season is. And they meet LeBron at the stadium and they like go backstage and, and he's like with the trainers and it's like, hey, wanna talk to you about socks? Let us tell you why Wait, our socks are better. Who is the guy that you, you like chose to put this task? Yeah, so it was our head you're of like, product. Okay. His name's Taylor Shoup. And you're and, like, hey, um, Taylor, here's the deal. Yep. Your job, if you choose to accept. Yes, and Taylor probably LeBron. knows more about knitting and sock making than nearly like any human okay. in the planet. Like he is an he's deep in expert. It. He's a sock savant. Yes, okay. he's a total expert. And so I think he sort of in the back of his head's like, once I have a few words with LeBron, like he'll understand okay. and we'll get through yeah, you this. Yeah, do, you do basketball. I'll do socks. Yes. <laughs> so I, uh, apparently, as the story goes, he's kind of like face down, getting a massage, and Taylor's trying to talk to him. And he's kind of like, dude, I'm trying to get a massage. Like, why are you talking to me about socks? And he's not really having He's kind of like, hey, just leave the socks there. I'll wear them. And so I'm not even sure like a real conversation, like a two-way dialogue <laughs> happens. He's like, I'm but we sort of like, I wonder how we even got in the room. Like, yeah. I'm imagining like no, he's like No, it's all arranged by the oh, NBA. Okay. And we know all the trainers okay. from the different organizations. And so... They're sort of like, the NBA is like, hey, we got to make sure LeBron's happy. So we end up dropping off a bunch of basically a copy of the sock he loves with NBA graphics on it, plus the new supersonic sock. And, um, and you know, that's sort of the end of it. We don't hear anything else. I guess he's just happy. So I never really learned, like, is he wearing the old socks? Is he wearing the new socks? We totally outfitted him. You're just watching the game and like trying to. But zoom. we never really got the chance to like talk him into our socks. Right. Yeah. Um, it just didn't come together. But that was um, kind of a cool backstory to how it all came together. Wasn't there one where Kobe like gave you guys a big shout out? Yeah. So Kobe's final game ever, right? He he's had sort of his last two years are, let's call it. He's performed at a lower level than than previously. He's had some rough nights, some rough right. shooting nights, and people are sort of questioning. The game against the Jazz. I can't remember who's against, but he goes off for like 61 points. It's like the ultimate like last night in the NBA. Mm -hmm. He just goes on fire, and 
um, he's wearing Stan socks. And so in the press conference after the game, someone's like, Kobe, that was a breakout night. You know, was it the socks? And he's like, yeah, it had to be the socks. And he starts oh laughing. And that what was like... What would you have paid for that? I it mean, was amazing. What, what would you have paid if you could have like said... I mean, you literally stood up off your couch just fist pumping. Yeah, yeah. We have that, of course, in all of our promo videos. It's like yeah. Kobe saying his 61 point final night performance was because of Stan Socks. I would literally just collapse on the floor. Like yeah. that, yeah. It was really cool. We had a lot of great moments like that. You know, we'd have... Dwayne Wade go on late night TV shows and talk about the company and why he got involved. And, you know, we've had James Harden do some amazing media for us. Like just people that fell in love with it yeah. and helped us along the way. Well, and I think when you define values like that or define your brand, then you attract like-minded people that are happy to talk about it, right? Like almost like, you know, you mentioned Dwayne Wade. Was he the, did he do the flamingos? Did you guys do like pink flamingos with Dwayne Wade? Is yeah, some of the early socks were Miami Beach inspired and yeah. I thought they would be a total flop and turns out they were like all bestsellers. I'm like, get me out of the design room. <laughs> <laughs> but when it's interesting and maybe the last question I'll ask for you is um, advice that you have for our people. The way that we do our sales teams is they're like businesses. They really are like, um, you know, the closest one to us here, we have one in Orange County, we have one in San Diego North and the people that are running them are sales leaders that have had different experience, but now they're in charge of basically a franchise of the business. And it's their job to acquire the sales team, to train the sales team, to create a company culture, and to provide solar energy for the community. So, you know, as I listen to your story, you've done a really good job of doing the work, becoming educated, and then um, kind of defining what the workplace is. What advice would you give to either your earlier self or these guys that are starting these offices or that are running these businesses? Where should they focus? Look, I think when I reflect back, it, the successes I've had are oftentimes correlated to what I would just call like personal development and, you know, personal character. And so you can't lead publicly until you're leading privately and having consistently great habits is the hard thing. It requires self-discipline. Like some people are really good at consistently working out. Some people are really great at consuming a lot of knowledge through books. Some people are really great uh, about you know, waking up early or whatever those daily habits are that make a difference in your life. And being able to do those things consistently over time, I think is the secret to most of the success that you see outwardly. Um, it's happening inwardly. And I know for myself, like sometimes like to get back on track, I'll just set my alarm clock extra early and I know it's not going to feel good, but getting out of bed, like setting a little bit of mental commitment and say, I'm going to wake up early tomorrow and go do whatever it is before everyone else is out of bed. What's early for you? Like 5.30 or 6. I usually wake up at 6.30. So if I want to like get started early, yeah. get down in the office 5.30, like that's early for me. Mm -hmm. And I generally work later too. So that's a shorter night of sleep. And having the ability to keep that one commitment to myself the alarm went off at 5.30, I had the option to hit snooze, but I actually got out of bed and did something, creates a new track record of, I kept a commitment to myself. And you know, you can build on that and you can do it the next day and the next day and whatever it is, whether it's resetting any part of your, your personal commitment, like you need a little win to like set it off, to put it in motion. 
And then once you have that, it can start to gain momentum. And I think the people that I look up to the most are the people that have somehow figured out how to consistently repeat those things over time. Everyone else sees kind of the outward success, but it's almost always rooted in a bunch of inward success that you didn't see. Maybe it's the price you paid as a phone salesperson early in your career, or the price you paid doing a bunch of all-nighters to write investment memorandums. Like the, those things added up over time, you know, become the reservoir of capacity that you have. So if I'm thinking about being a sales leader, an individual performer, leading other people, you're not gonna do it consistently all the time because that's really, really hard and you're human. So it's how do you catch yourself when you're slipping? How do you reset it? And how do you get back on track? And if you can do that fairly consistently, I think that's what leads to greatness. It's just a little bit, it's small things over time. It's great advice. And honestly, I think everybody's always looking for the silver bullet. And the one that they hear is work on yourself. You can't, you just, it's the oxygen mask, right? You literally can't help other people until you're in a, a solid place. Well, we appreciate so much you sitting down and sharing with us yeah, and sharing with our, our sales leaders. This has been an incredible experience for us. And I think your story is one that will resonate with, with a lot of people and a lot of our audience. So congratulations on your success. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us. And this has been Electric People. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.